Well, thanks for joining us here. Um, we're going to hop right in with Dr. Olin Brown, and uh, you're listening to Educate for Life uh, Radio. We're doing things a little bit differently here in the quarantine. Um, I'm Kevin Conover, and I'm the host here. And my ministry is meant to help people um, really get a biblical worldview, really understand God and his perspective on things. And uh, I, I broadcast from down here in Southern California, San Diego. Specifically, I'm on KPRZ 1210 AM, but we're, I'm actually broadcasting from home right now. And uh, Dr. Brown is at, in his home. And let me tell you a little bit about him. We're going to be talking about COVID-19. He actually just had a, pu a paper published, a scientific paper published, um, just became available last night, actually. And so uh, this is uh, fantastic. It's in bioscience, um, Frontiers in Bioscience, Landmark Edition 2020. And um, he'll provide you more information about where you can get access to that paper and uh, learn more about what he's written. Uh, he is an expert witness and consult in the life sciences. He's a board-certified toxic toxicologist. He has a PhD in microbiology. And uh, some of his appointments are Professor Emeritus, University of Missouri, uh, excuse me, University of Missouri, Columbia, uh, Dalton Cardiovascular Research Center, the Graduate School, Department of Molecular Bio Microbiology and Immunology, School of uh, Medicine, Department of Biomedical Sciences, and Adjunct Professor of Pathology. Um, and he's been doing this for 35 years. So Dr. Brown, thanks again for being on the program today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. And uh, he was on my program a while back. We, we spoke specifically um, about the existence of viruses and these sorts of things and poisons and actually how uh, the existence of these is a, a credit to creation and a fault to evolution. It actually, he actually talks about how um, poisons and toxicology actually points to a creator and away from the theory of evolution. So um, Dr., uh, Dr. Brown, I wanted to get right into the issue of COVID-19. Um, there's a lot of information out there. People are constantly saying things about, you know, what you should do. The government started out saying no masks were needed. Then, the, then they changed their minds. They said masks are needed. Um, and now uh, we have different approaches about what's, uh, you know, what's effective in the treatment, what's effective in prevention and these sorts of things. And um, I wanted to start out with you giving us an explanation about exactly what's going on with COVID-19 as a virus. And then for the lay people that are listening to, um, just some basic science about how viruses and bacteria are, you know, bacterial infections are different from one another. And, and then when we look at things in history, when we look at things like the Black Death, uh, 1346 to 1353, um, that was a bacterium. Um, and that killed around 50 million people. The Spanish flu um, killed an estimated 100 million people. And so I just want to talk about, you know, how serious is this? And uh, there's a lot of these sorts of questions that are out there. But why don't we just start off with, you know, uh, exactly what is a virus and what is the difference between a virus and a, a bacterial infection? Well, a virus is the smallest thing that can infect uh, a person or an animal or even a plant. Uh, they're much smaller than bacteria. Uh, most people refer to bacteria as germs. Sometimes you also think of viruses as germs. Germs are things that are undesirable. They, they cause disease. So both bacteria and viruses cause disease. Uh, 
the virus is much smaller, much simpler. Uh, the virus works pretty much like a, a spy. Uh, it has to get inside a cell before it can replicate, before it can multiply. Not so with bacteria. Some bacteria get inside our body cells to do their harm, but bacteria are larger and have much more capability. They can live on their own. Uh, we can grow them on a Petri dish in a medium, uh, a culture medium in the laboratory. We can't grow viruses apart from another living cell. So there is a difference in size and the complexity and difference in the way they, they get along in the world and a difference in the way they uh, cause disease. And we can talk about that. So, that, you know, that's really interesting. So are you saying that a virus actually isn't even alive or is it alive? Well, most scientists don't consider them living. Uh, they are simple, simple to the point that they, they are, in a way, as inert as a grain of sand, unless they can borrow machinery and get inside a cell. So, personally, I don't think of them as being alive in the sense that we normally think of things able to grow, take in stuff on their own, um, and replicate, multiply. They can't do that unless they have a living cell. Okay, and, and do people generally think of viruses as more dangerous than bacterial uh, infections, or is that just dependent upon what the virus is or what the bacteria is? The latter. Uh, also, uh, we, have, we have more medicine that we can use against uh, bacterial diseases. We have only a few... Uh, chemicals uh, that we can treat uh, viral infections, and um, that's one of the problems with with the COVID. Okay, and so um, you know, with what's happening now, uh, when you look at the the virus here, it, are we comparing this to something as significant and as dangerous as like the Spanish flu, um, or is this where is it on the the scale of you know? Um, Hostility, I guess, or, or danger. Yeah. Well, I have to say a big disclaimer here. There's so much that we don't know, and that's not just an excuse. Uh, I will try to tell you what I do know, and I will try to tell you uh, also things that we, we think uh, we know. But there's a lot that we don't know, and, of course, what we don't know, we don't know. Uh, fundamentally speaking, you, you can't just categorically say that viral diseases are less or more harmful uh, than bacterial. You have to deal with them specifically, apart from the fact that we have much more medicines. Uh, if, you, if, you if you're diagnosed with viral pneumonia, we don't have a specific pill we can give you. If you have bacterial pneumonia, we have a number of antibiotics that we would prescribe. Interesting. I want to talk more about that, but before we do, um, so, so a lot of people right now, you know, there's, there's this effort to make a vaccine, to make something that's going to deal with this, with, with COVID-19, um, and people are working feverishly to get this done, uh, no pun intended, but, but um, you know, what makes this so much more dangerous than the annual flu? And you hear a lot of people saying, well, we, I'm never going to take a vaccine for this. There's a lot of people that are anti-vaccine. They're very concerned about that. 
And I, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day, they said, even if a vaccine came up, I wouldn't take it. Um, and so I'm just curious, you know, why people's reaction is so hostile to vaccines and, um, uh, you know, why is this, why is this such an issue compared to the, the regular flu that we have every year? Okay, there's sort of two questions there. Uh, it's different from the regular flu because the way it, um, the way it operates inside the body is, is, is quite different. And uh, we don't really know for certain. But with some people, it seems to be quite deadly. Uh, the flu can also be deadly. But I would say in terms of deadliness, uh, the risk of dying from it, at this point, we, we think it is, it is worse. Uh, with respect to infectivity, it is probably quite similar. Uh, when we're talking about flu also, of course, we have to distinguish the flu changes each year. And, and flu is, is a different virus. It, is, it belongs to a different family. Uh, it's similar in size and similar in the way it operates, but um, it belongs to a different family than do the, the COVID viruses. The, the COVID viruses uh, are a group of viruses, again, most of them don't infect humans. Uh, in the past, we've had episodes that have come and gone. Uh, we, had a, we thought we had a serious problem. It didn't spread around the world. Uh, it, it was some of these other viral diseases that were caused by coronaviruses were quite deadly. But fortunately, they, they, they didn't blossom into or it didn't turn out to be deadly and, and pandemic. Uh, that's the thing that's concerning. There are several things about the coronavirus that we, the COVID-19 disease. Uh, it's very easily transmitted. Uh, it, we don't know how deadly it is. We, you see, when we, when we do statistics, we, we have a ratio. How many people have it? How many go to the hospital? How many who go to the hospital die? We don't have good numbers, and those numbers are changing. Most of your audiences, I mean, they look every day at the computer to see how many people in the world, how many in the United States are infected, how many, how many died. And those numbers change, and the ratio changes. So I'm not just hedging here. It's going to be a long time before we have really good numbers. But the, the normal flu that you get each year can be worse or less harmful year by year. The number of people that get infected changes, the number that die changes. So right now, the, that was a long answer. The short answer is that we really don't know. We're hoping for the best. But at this point, um, you would rather have the regular flu than, than have this, as far as we know at this point. Yeah. Now, I was talking to a doctor um, about uh, vaccines and so forth uh, regarding the flu. This was probably about a, maybe a year or so ago. And the doctor said to me, um, I said, why should I take the flu vaccine? Um, because I just wanted to hear what she had to say. She's a very smart doctor. Um, and and uh, my daughter has uh, cystic fibrosis, a genetic disease, right? And so we have to be very careful about her getting sick because she has a lung disease. And so we have to be very careful with the flu. 
And in my life, I, I haven't typically gotten sick a lot. Um, and most of my life, I didn't take any flu vaccines. But the doctor persuaded me that, hey, you should take this because you don't want your daughter to get sick. And that prompted me to ask more questions. And so I said, how do you determine the flu vaccine? And she said, um, well, basically what they do is they anticipate what flus are happening around the world. And as flu season approaches, they try to make a vaccine specifically for that particular flu, uh, flu virus. And she said, I said, how effective is it? She said, well, maybe, you know, 20, 30% uh, effective. I said, so she said, there's lots of flus out there. And so we're not necessarily going to always get the right one that you're going to get. So even if you get the flu vaccine, it's not necessarily going to protect you from the flu, that, the virus that you get. So I said, so you, you're saying there's about a three out of 10 chance that the vaccine that I get is actually going to protect me from the flu that is there. Um, and, and a lot of people are very concerned about vaccines. They think, you know, hey, people are in this for money. They're making this vaccine. It's not actually going to be effective. And, and it potentially could be harmful because you're introducing something into the body that, that isn't good for you. Um, you know, can you break this down for us? Give us a better understanding of the whole, you know, flu vaccine situation and how this applies to the COVID-19 situation. Well, sure, I'll try. Um, I, I am pro-vaccine myself. I'll give one little anecdote, however. The polio vaccine did not exist when I was a child. The polio virus, uh, we didn't even know what caused polio. Think of that. If we didn't know what was causing this disease, we had no idea. Uh, that would be worse in some ways. The reason I mentioned the polio vaccine is because I was in microbiology, a student at the time. I had a wife and, and a young daughter. I chose not to use the vaccine initially. Polio is a serious disease. It's dreadly. It's threatening. The number of uh, people who get polio is not as huge. And I realized that they, were, that they were using a live polio vaccine. It was attenuated. But you were giving a live vaccine, a live virus. Can you, can chose, you break, that, break that down for our audience? What is a, a live virus versus a, a not living uh, virus? Or, sure. Uh, sorry, a live vaccine that, versus a not live vaccine. Yes. That, that um, goes against what I said earlier about viruses not being uh, alive. We yeah. sort of slop over in our language. Uh, it's a killed virus, and that's not much better. But the virus can't multiply. It still okay. has the, the chemical structure. It still is recognized by the immune system of the body. And the immune system recognizes it as foreign and makes antibodies. They circulate in your blood, and they protect you against the virus which is not inactivated. Uh, that's what we call, that's what's called a live uh, virus. It's been attenuated so that it can't produce disease. Now that raises risk in question because uh, you, you would understand that. Um, I chose not to take the vaccine or give it to my wife or, or my wife chose her for herself, but for our daughter not to take it because I knew that there was a kill, a vaccine that was not capable uh, of growing at all, multiplying. And when it came out, we took it. I have a good friend who's very bright, very smart. He refuses. He, he, he thinks vaccines are bad. Uh, we talk about that. Um, I would say that uh, 
the risk is small. Uh, I was in a case once recently where uh, people were concerned about the flu vaccine. There is actually a, set, a, 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 a pot of money set aside already and will be given to people who have truly suffered that one in a million chance and got a serious reaction to the virus. That money exists. And uh, I was involved in a case where we looked at the validity of an individual's right. Did they really suffer? So you're, you're looking at a one in a million chance uh, on the flu vaccine, for example, that it's going to in some way harm you. Uh, that's serious. So would you say that what that doctor was saying to me about the development of vaccines and the um the protection that a vaccine prov provides, you know, for the flu, does that sound accurate to you? Does that sound uh, feasible? It varies every year. It has been as high as 60% that I recall in the recent past. It depends on how different the virulent strain that's out there in any given year. How much did we miss it? How far different is that strain from the one that we put in the vaccine that we give to people? then people differ in their abilities to mount an immune response. So everyone's different. Uh, the other thing we haven't talked about here is, is like the minimally infective dose. Uh, if you are overwhelmed with a huge dose, that's a more serious condition than if your body only has to get rid of or resist uh, a, a small number. So every year it's different. I think it's closer to 50% so far this year. They're accumulating data as time goes on. Uh, it has been as low as 30%. Depends on how much, how good our guess is about which strain of the virus is going to be the one that's going to be loose this yeah, year. And we have to do that be, year ahead. That's going to become the most uh, yeah, populous uh, uh, flu. And so essentially, um, Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Now, they're trying to develop a COVID-19 uh, vaccine. Um, what is the difficulty in being able to, to produce this vaccine? Because um, is this much more difficult than being able to develop a flu vaccine? Um, what's happening there? We hope it's easier. We hope that this COVID doesn't have as many varieties, doesn't shift its um, outer coat the part of it that interacts where the immune system can recognize it. We hope that the COVID is, is less versatile than, than flu. It probably is. That's probably a good guess. Um, the problem with making vaccines, we have to do two things. We have to assure that they're safe and we assure that they're effective. And to produce a vaccine from scratch takes billions of years, um, billions of dollars. I was going to say years. No. <laughs> but it takes a long time. Uh, there's all sorts of protection that the FDA and regulations, uh, we're in the process of trying to relax those in a, in a smart way. So what's the risk is if we relax a little bit of the regulation? Well, let me say this without getting too worried. Uh, there's two things you have to do. You have to show that you have a, a vaccine that's safe and a vaccine that's effective. So you start out with an idea about how you're going to produce this magic 
stuff that we're going to put in people that's going to make their immune system able to resist the virus. We start there. Then we have to prove that whatever vaccine that we're going to put in the bottle, that it's going to be safe. So we start out testing it now. Then we go to humans with a very small number of people. Hopefully we won't have a problem. We've had vaccines for a long time. This one's different, but it's not that different. So we're hopeful we get through that. Then we have to prove that it's effective. And this is what are called the clinical trials. The first clinical trial is just a few people. Then we go to more and more. And in this case, we're trying to compress the time, trying to be as smart as we can, take as few risks. But the, the probability, is, well, there are several companies that have already gotten past the first few stages. They've compressed. But it's going to, hopefully, they're talking about a year. That would be really, really, really quick. Hope is that we can push it even quicker. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so um, do you think that the the response to this has been uh, good? I mean, as far as do you think that we could have done a better job in responding to it? And or, or you know, a lot of people are thinking like um, you know we could have prepared better for this. Why were we caught so unawares? Um, you know, isn't this something that you could you know what what is it that creates this problem where you have such a wild uh, outbreak like you had with the Spanish flu, like you had with the Black Death, like you had over the history, this ha seems to happen every once in a while. And I, I kind of feel like, and I'm sure a lot of people feel like they're living in a movie. I, I feel like I'm like, what in the world? This is unreal, um, the, the stuff that's been happening. And so why did it happen this way? And how did it seem to get so out of control? Is it just because of the nature of this particular virus and how easy it is to catch or, and spread? Or is it, um, is it something else that's going on? It's always a combination thing. What you put your hand on, finger on there is true. We don't know as much. We don't know what we, we don't know everything we'd like to know. But it is apparent that this virus spreads very, very easily. Uh, spreading of viruses, you know, a virus that you have to consume, you have to eat, one that infects the digestive system is, is, is a little different than something that you can cough out in, in, in droplets and that will spread to someone who's near you. Uh, it's even more of a problem if the virus comes out of the respiratory system in droplets that can be airborne and float around in a room and that you might then breathe in. And that's called airborne. And in the horrible area that we probably won't talk about here, but the, where people have tried to design uh, warfare, uh, things that could be used in warfare. That's one of the problems is how do you, you can have something that's deadly, but how do you infect a lot of people? So people have worried and worked about that in, in, a, in a way that goes toward production of, of an evil thing. We don't know as much as we need to know about how this virus spreads. At first, we were told, we felt that it probably only was like it was going to contaminate your hands and you rub that on your face or your nose and you spread it. Then they realized that there was social distancing that might work if it was just coming out when you sneeze. You know, when the people years ago, they started sneezing into their elbow. Yeah. Uh, 
and things like that to, can you imagine how ineffective that is? But it's better than nothing. That's where we are with, with the spreading this disease, is it, it can be airborne. We are hopeful that it's really not airborne in the sense that it can remain airborne floating around in a room for a long period of time. It has to be kind of sprayed out. That would be what we hope. But that in itself causes it to be extremely infective. Uh, you ask, how, why is it worse? Think about it this way. If one person infects one person, that's just pretty slow spread and limited. If it's less than one person, it's going to go away with time. If it's more than one, the bigger that number is, the more likely it's going to stay and spread. Think about it this way. Um, we have a, a vaccine against what's called measles. There's several kinds of measles, but ordinary measles vaccine. When I, when I was a kid, you didn't have measles vaccine. Normally, it wasn't that serious. You could get a brain infection from it and die, but most kids didn't. In fact, some parents actually <laughs> exposed their kids to say, this is a convenient time. Uh, the, the, the spread rate is, is at least 18 people, which is as many as you have in a classroom. So if one kid in, in the classroom full of people who haven't had measles comes down with it, they're all going to get it. So that's where we are. How, how infectious it is, and, and you're part of your original question related to where it comes from. We think that it spread from viruses that couldn't, didn't know how weren't capable of infecting a human, but they were infecting a bat. That bat virus mutated, changed in a way that it's still the same virus, but it has the ability to infect a human. Now, that's a really that, interesting yeah. uh, point that you bring up there, right? So first it can only be in bats and now it can be in humans. And this has to do with, you know, as a Christian, and we're approaching things from a biblical worldview, we're approaching things from, okay, the perspective of God and how things have been designed and these sorts of things. And, um, you know, one of the questions that people have come up with is, okay, why would God make viruses, right? I, I had a person uh, ask me on Facebook, if God is real, then why does HIV exist? Um, what purpose would he have in making that? And I thought that was a really interesting question. I, I came up with an answer which I felt kind of like uh, was inspired. But uh, at the same time, I'm really curious as to, um, so, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, you just said that that thing uh, somehow adapted. Is that, does that have something to do with evolution? Does that have to do with uh, undirected mutations? When you say that this virus went from being only being able to be in animals and now all of a sudden it can be in humans, um, what's going on there from, from a creation evolution perspective? Well, if we, if we call that evolution, I, I would say more properly, it's called microevolution. I don't think there's any plausible way that a scientist, whether you're religious or not, can, cannot believe and cannot understand that, that this kind of change does occur. Things do mutate. The genetic information can change. And that's absolutely true. Uh, the larger question about how that fits in, uh, as a scientist, even if I were not religious, I, I, I would not believe what we currently teach 
uh, in biology classes about evolution. The idea that um, survival of the fittest makes no sense. What survives the fittest? What's fittest? The ones who survive. It tells us nothing. It may be true, but it tells us nothing about how we came to be. Um, the, the idea of what's wrong with the, the biological theory of evolution, I'd say almost everything. Uh, but that would be a long discussion that we could yeah. have. <laughs> yes. So, so, um, so that's just adaptation is what you're saying. So w w you have changes in the structure of the, of the virus. And I still don't fully understand how you can have something that's not alive, um, you know, uh, adapting to its environment other than this is some sort of uh, code, programming code that, that uh, dynamically alters itself. It's almost like artificial intelligence or something if it, without being alive, it's very interesting. Well, when you said that it adapts, it, it really doesn't, it just changes. Okay. And the changes are produced by opportunities around it. Um, you know, the broader question that, about why does God uh, allow evil um, is something that I have written about. And I don't know if that's something we, we would want to discuss in this role or relationship right here. Yeah, well, actually, I think that's really interesting, and I do want to talk about that. Um, I know you wrote the book on miracles, and that everything is a miracle, not, uh, you know, not just walking on water, but really all of reality is a miracle, is what you're emphasizing in the book, and I think that's a, a very interesting point, and I do want to definitely talk about that, because um, I want to talk to you about, you know, you know, that relationship between God and viruses and, and that sort of thing, but before we get in there, I want to cover a little bit more of the science um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, you had a paper that was published just last night um, and is now available for the general public um, to be able to look at on COVID-19 along with um, another scientist also. Uh, and if you're listening and you're interested in this, uh, bioscience.org is uh, where you can get a copy of this. Um, specifically, it's in a public um, open access forum. You can check it out at bioscience.org forward slash express dash open dash access. And uh, this is in the frontiers in bioscience. Can you tell us, uh, kind of give us the abstract and the focus of your, your paper that you did on COVID-19? Well, I, I want to give full credit to my first author. Uh, his name is Babu V. Bassa, B-A-S-S-A. Uh, many years ago, he was a postdoc in my lab, and he's a scientist. Uh, independently in his own right, and we collaborated on this. Now, the title of the paper is the simplest uh, summary. It's a comparative analysis of coronavide uh, nucleocapsid and surface glycoprotein sequence. And what that really means is that my colleague developed a way to use computers to take information from what's called gene bank, where people have deposited the genetic information about uh, everything, humans, viruses, everything. And he has programmed where he can examine the similarities and differences in those genetic codes for different viruses, different uh, coronaviruses. Uh, compare them, those from, we get from a bat, where, where that is, is put in the gene bank. Compare it with COVID-19 see how they are similar and how much of it is different. And so that's what the paper's about. 
And we hope that, that it will enlighten us with, with respect to the surety of where it did come from. But more importantly, that it will instruct us, inform us about the surface proteins and things that are on the surface where the virus interacts with our immune system. So we have to know that in a, in a way to understand how we can, how we can take advantage of, of our immune abilities and stimulate it to be able to resist infection. Oh, very interesting. So essentially, it's a paper on uh, how to, uh, in essence, provide the right vaccine that's actually going to help the immune system to be able to deal with the real COVID-19. We hope that it will be helpful to people who are, who are already deeply immersed and on the way to generating vaccines. You see, there is even a possibility here that we may have a vaccine already out there that's not approved, that uh, was made for uh, an earlier SARS or an earlier MERS virus, um, that we haven't, we haven't taken it to the point where it's approved. It's not available, but it's, it's been developed to, to an extent beyond which we have anything for this virus. If we could show that, that the similarities of the parts of the virus that interact with the immune system is the same, that would be good evidence that an, an existing, something that we've worked on since 19, 2003 or 2012, might give us a leg up. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, um, along those same lines, you know, some people have said that we're overreacting to uh, COVID-19, uh, and then other people have said, well, we, we didn't react strongly enough. Um, what's your viewpoint on how, you know, the world has approached this? I mean, we can look at the U.S. government, but in general, um, what's your response to, has the reaction been appropriate? Has it been, been uh, uh, too dramatic? What do you think? Well, there's not been one response, obviously. And, and so some of the responses have been probably uh, overreactions in certain cases. Some of them have been too slow. And, and that's not very helpful. Uh, you know, I don't know what I would do if I were God of, of the vaccine, God of the system in terms of how we respond. It would be a huge burden and a responsibility. Let, let me say that. Um, we don't believe that the Chinese were as forthcoming as early as they could have been. That, if it happened the way we think it did, I don't like that. That's not good. Um, there have been responses toward how we tool up with things like uh, masks or uh, ventilators. Um, probably a reacted reasonably with respect to getting ventilators. We can talk about ventilators, the problem with that. Um, the idea of masks, I, I have to smile a little bit because, you know, there were people with straight face would say, oh, don't wear a mask, it won't do any good. We have to save those for our healthcare people. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. Well, well, it, it's, just, <laughs> it's just common sense that a mask, if it's respiratorily spread, is going to be helped. It's not perfect. But don't let the, 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 the good be the enemy of, of the perfect. Um, so why so were so many I, people initially saying you don't need to wear a mask? Why were so many, what the government and the media was saying, 
parroting this idea that you don't need to wear masks and then they change their mind. What, what was going on there? Well, there was a problem with supply. Uh, we needed those masks for health healthcare people. Now, I'm not saying anybody's telling you, <laughs> or lying to you or anything. I'm not, that's not the word I'm coming from. I'm just saying we didn't have enough masks. One of the things that they did is they relaxed the regulations. There's a lot of regulations. Difference between a mask that you buy at the local hardware store and, and wear as a dust mask. That one's not uh, the regulations. It's the same mask, but it hasn't passed all the tests and everything. So we had the right number of masks available for hospital, for hospital and doctors, but we didn't have enough to give 360 million people in our country 10 masks to have available to each person. Yeah. So do you think that actually influenced the governments and the, the media? It would have influenced me if I was making the decision. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, well um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting uh, how that all took place. But uh, it seems like things are more under control in that regard. So let's kind of switch gears and talk about, um, you know, your book, Miracles, and Everything's a Miracle. And so what does this mean as far as God is concerned and the introduction to, of, of viruses into um, the world? I mean, uh, God said in the six days of creation, everything he made is good. Um, you know, does that include viruses? And, uh, you know, you know how, do we, how do we respond to this as Christians who there's a lot of people asking these sorts of questions now because of the fact that, um, you know, all of this is taking place? What are your thoughts on that? Well, actually, this is a... A reason that a lot of people who are agnostic or, or uh, atheists uh, will give. They will say, you know, God can't be uh, all knowing, all powerful, uh, and creator of everything. And at the same time, and all loving, those things are, can't all be true because we know that bad things happen and things happen to good people. Um, I have to, I, I don't know the answer. <laughs> I don't know the answer to these things. People who, who have, people have struggled from this from the beginning of time, surely. Uh, there have been a lot of writings by theologians and, and by others which give different stories. The simplest answer, which is satisfactory to some people, and I, no criticism of it, is that there's just God is beyond our knowing. There, there are things that we won't know. What are you going to ask God when you get to heaven? What are, what's the first question you're going to ask? Um, but I take a little different approach, if I might. The fundamental issue here is, um, is good and evil. Did, did God create anything that was evil? Uh, I thought about this a lot in my book, and, and there's, there's sort of two elements that address it in, in one of my chapters. Um, the simplest condensation of this might be if I just quoted a little from the book or, or if you quoted what I sent to you from chapter four, if you read that and then yeah, we could reflect on it. Yeah, I'll read it. So this is, this is uh, from Dr. Brown's book, uh, Miracles. It's in chapter four. And um, you can check this out. You can get the book on Amazon if you want to check it out. Um, and a great opportunity to uh, hear a scientific perspective on miracles. But um, he, he wrote this, God created everything. Everything is the miracle. 
the miracle of creation that God used to make the world we know required choices. Choices result in inclusion and exclusion. Exclusion of evil creates good. Good, having been created, defines evil. Evil is allowed by God as a consequence. This consequence also permits free will. Free will allows us to choose to reject evil and to serve God out of love. Love, in its ultimate form, is expressed through the blameless life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Christ, the Messiah, provides salvation and the means to restore fellowship between man and God. God created everything. So, to me, there's a principle here that everything that exists is a miracle created by God. And it requires an answer to this question. Why is there evil in the world? The simple answer, if there is a simple answer, and, and I don't say that this is a solution to all questions relating to the subject, but in the world as we know it, now we can imagine a different kind of world, but the world that we know is specific. And God did choose to allow evil in the world. It's inescapable. We know that evil is around. Can we think of an existence without the possibility of evil? How would we define good if there were no evil? Think about it. Could you know? Would you be aware that evil existed, that good existed if it had no boundary? Some of these things take time for you to think about. Let me go on with the idea that free will also would have no meaning if we weren't free to choose. The word choose and choice is important for every person's life. You have a choice. Sometimes the choice is limited, but you have a choice. Once having made a choice, there are consequences. Think about it this way. God can be all-knowing, all-powerful. God can be in a position where he has to choose. If you're going to make a world, think about it in the simplest thing. You're going to make something soft. How are you going to know what soft is? How are you going to define soft? The limits of soft become hard. Yeah, you have to be able to compare it. Yeah. So. Think about the, let me skip ahead because time is limited. Think about it this way. Love. Could we have love if there was no possibility not to love? You have to be free. You have to choose. Once you choose something, you exclude. I'm saying that in creation, creation is a process of exclusion. You know, one of the famous painters, who was it, Michelangelo, said, how do you make that beautiful marble statue? Well, I just cut away everything that's, that's not the angels, that's my statue. I just cut away everything that's not the angel. So by creation, in some sense, we have to exclude. If we exclude things, it, it implies that there's, there's stuff there that's not love. So by creating love, you have to, in some way, 
to have a world that exists. Once yeah. God, it's God's not limited in his choices, but he, to, but to make the world that he does make, he makes choices. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I think, you know, I talk to my students about this. Why is the tree in the garden? Why did God put the tree in the garden as an opportunity for them to choose? Um, that was the whole point was that uh, through that choice, they demonstrated their love for God or their lack, their, their love for themselves. And, and, and so, um, because love is selfless, right? So that's very important. So as it pertains to viruses, what I'm curious about is, you know, that oftentimes one of the things that's brought up by an atheist or an evolutionist or whatever, and, um, you know, have you ever thought, is there any potential idea about out there about how a virus could, uh, at least maybe before the fall or whatever, because we know a lot of things changed after the fall, after the sin. Um, what would be the, um, would there be any benefit potentially to a virus out there? Has science shown anything like that in your in your mind, um, or have you thought through that at all? As, uh, I was just curious. I thought, I thought about that. I don't don't find it useful as solutions to to go far down that path. I, I go sort of have gone in the direction in my thinking is that it it becomes permitted. You see, if we if God decides He did that, He was going to have a genetic basis of information about how to create the stuff, the machinery that can replicate, that can take in food and can grow and, and do all these kinds of things. We, we have a circumstance where there is a potential. If you think about it, if you were God, you're going to make an electron, one of the smallest elementary fundamental particles. You're going to make protons. You're going to, you're going to put those together and make, chemical you're gonna have to at some place make a choice what is the charge on the electron what is its weight how many protons can you put together in what ways how do they form different elements how does one make carbon one make oxygen but you you have to even if you're god you have to make choices about how these things are going to behave and what they're going to do think about it this way also if you're going to make genetics, you, you've got to have, you've turned loose a potential. Viruses have to obey the same rule. They have, some of them, the virus we're talking about here is very simple. It doesn't have DNA. It has something called RNA. We have RNA. RNA is, the DNA in our cells is a blueprint. It's a master thing that we keep over here and replicate when we need to, but we make a bunch of copies. We, we Xerox. We Xerox it in something called RNA. This virus we're talking about doesn't even have DNA. It's so stupid and so simple. Well, excuse me for calling it stupid. Maybe we'll be struck down by it. But it doesn't have that DNA. All it does, it's an RNA. It's so, so poor. It has to go look for a cell has to get inside the cell. It has one enzyme. The rest of the machinery for making viruses, it borrows. Think of it, hold your hands like this. Here's a virus. That virus is so small. On a scale of things, humans, we're about midway. On the way to the smallest thing, is there a thing that can't be smaller? 
Well, we used to think not, but now we do think that Planck's constant determines something beyond which we can't have anything smaller. We come midway and we get to us. We go on the big scale, we go to the universe. We're sort of halfway in between. Viruses are smaller. Let's suppose we have a magic machine. Take a, take a, a little uh, thought experiment. We have a magic thing that can magnify. Virus is so small, if we could make it big as a basketball, we could look at it and we could say, gee, I can examine it. Suppose we magnify the, the, the virus up from its size, nanometers, up to basketball size. Now, suppose accidentally I get myself in the same magnification field. Accidentally, I'm exploded into size. How big would I be? Virus comes from its size up to me. I get accidentally blown up. How big would I be? I would be half the diameter of Venus. <laughs> Does that tell you how small a virus is? How can we be concerned? How can we take note of something that small? Think of a burglar in your neighborhood. Burglar comes down. He's looking for a place to rob. Your door is open. Not only is it locked, it's open. The neighbor has a big fence. His door's locked. Where's the virus? Where is the burglar going to go? The burglar can get in my cell, in my house. He wants to get in there because he don't know how to make more viruses, but he knows how to borrow the machinery in your cell. Yeah. So that's in simple explanation, hopefully. Yeah, it's amazing that something this this small and this simple can cause this much uh, <laughs> this many this many problems. But well, uh, Dr. Brown, we're coming up towards the end here. But before we do, I wanted to offer those of you who are listening, if you have a question you'd like to put to uh, Dr. Brown and give him a chance to answer the, uh, any questions you might have, um, now would be a great time. Um, if if uh, there's something on your mind that uh, you feel like maybe he could answer that uh, you'd like to ask him. Um, so, you know, my, uh, my question for you right now is, and we covered this a little bit um, in our last interview that we did a while back, but from your particular discipline, your, your scientific discipline of toxicology, of um, studying viruses and bacterial infections and poisons and all these sorts of different things, um, what for you is the main thing that really um, contradicts the evolutionary theory from your scientific discipline specifically that you you say from this from this perspective uh this really messes up evolution it just doesn't mesh together well in a short to try to say it simplistically it's a matter of information uh in order to have the complex living world that we experience and see requires uh, a lot of information and the information content in a cell has been described to be residing in the DNA. There's something we can call it a code. We call it a genetic code. It contains the information that uh, allows a cow to make a cow. It allows a 
bacterial cell to make another bacterial cell like it. It allows the virus to replicate. It allows us to be human. Uh, so there is information required. That information can be changed, but it takes intelligence to make new information. If I took um, a book of Shakespeare and I mutated it, I did violence to the text. Do you think it would write Tom Sawyer by a chance? Yeah, or any no. other book? Or could we take one book of the Bible? Could we take the book of John? And by screwing it up, <laughs> messing up the, the text, could we create the book of Luke? Uh, maybe that doesn't make sense to some people. It does to me. Fundamentally this, I don't, don't see any mechanism where that's known to us in science by which we can alter existing genetic information and create something new. Okay, yeah, no, no, that makes complete sense. I mean, and this is an argument that I've used many times, uh, is that uh, the information within the human genome, we have three billion letters in our code, and you can't just uh, throw in random letters and expect that the information is going to then produce, like, wings on my back or something like that. I'm not, it's just not going to happen um, through just adding undirected mutations. Um, I, ha I heard a guy say recently that, uh, this was an atheist, he said, um, people misunderstand, they call DNA information when in fact it's not actually information, uh, it's just chemicals moving around and, you know, asking, saying these sorts of things. Um, I, I didn't even know how to respond because I just said, well, I don't see how you can say the genetic code is not information. I mean, uh, by definition, it is information. We know exactly where the chromosomes are for particular things like eye color and my daughter's cystic fibrosis and these sorts of things. Um, how would you respond to somebody who said, well, we can't really call the DNA information? Well, that's like saying the letters of the alphabet in a book, the Bible or Shakespeare, is not information. I will admit, it, it takes intelligence to read the information. Or it takes some sort of a machine. We could design a machine that can look at information on the page and can read it to us. But it takes something outside that information. That's not a valid argument to say that the information is not information. Yeah. We, we have, uh, I think of it this way. We, if, 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 if evolution were going to work at all, we'd have to have an editor. We have to decide when something is on the way to being useful. The difference between, you know, the modifications, the number of modifications to, to speciate, change from one to another. How many are there? It would take a, a large number. Suppose every time you're on the way, you're going to need that. If you had an editor, it could save it against the time when you would need it then you might have a process that could work. But outside of an editor knowing and deciding and saving, otherwise, you know, the, the old idea of a room full of monkeys typing on typewriters and just eventually getting any book you want, they say, okay, how do you do that? You have to make time the miracle work. You have to have a miracle. 
you know, a billion years is not enough. We even now know that 20 billion years is not. It would take an infinity of time if you had to start over every time you make a mistake. You know, you, you might get a whole sentence of the book. that It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. But the next letter is wrong. You don't get to save it. There's no editor out there. This is, oh boy, you got the first part of a living being. So you're yeah. back in the same situation. You got to have an editor. And we're back to an intelligent design and a creator. Um, yeah, I, I, I read somebody actually did that. They put a bunch of monkeys in a room with a bunch of typewriters to see what would happen. And the monkeys just tore the typewriters apart and, you know, <laughs> defecated over, over all of them. So <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't work out. But, uh, Anyway, Dr. Brown, we're about out of time here, so I just really want to thank you for uh, being on the program today, and it's been a pleasure talking to you and getting to understand this more. Well, you're very kind. Yeah. Appreciate it. Well, yeah, big blessing. So if you're listening and you want to check this out, if you want to, um, we're going to post this in an archive. If you have friends that want to listen to it, we will be, it'll be on our website. It'll also be up on YouTube and around uh, on our a podcast, too. And uh, if you want to check out his paper, you can check it out at bioscience.org forward slash open dash access. That's uh, uh, where you can see the paper. It was just published. And uh, we're going to do a couple more short shows too on COVID-19. Have a, a few more scientists also who um, are on the cutting edge of looking at these issues. So, um, you know, uh, we'll be back also next week. We will be back with uh, Natasha Crane, uh, who recently wrote a book on talking to your kids about Jesus. So uh, it, the important things to cover when you're raising your kids and, and um, helping them to know the Lord. So. Uh, thanks for being with us today, and I uh, appreciate you guys uh, being here and listening in. And uh, we'll, we will see you next time. Uh, God bless you guys. Take care. Wave goodbye, Dr. Brown. See you later. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you.